As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. There is not one transfer market to, to, to close the, the gap. I think that uh, in this, uh, the last few, the last few years, this gap uh, became the very, very big, very, very big. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from the Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly, and I'm joined on the podcast today by Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare. It is important that they are here and not James Moore, because I suspect Spurs going from the euphoria of Leicester to what happened at Stamford Bridge might have been too much for him to take without a couple of days for the dust to settle. I also think it's important that we don't go from, as I say, the absolute bell-ringing joy of the late goals against Leicester to being too much down in the dumps about the Chelsea result. Though I do think it shows up all kinds of things about the team, the manager and the club. So why don't we start with you, Charlie, because you were at Stamford Bridge yesterday. Just tell us your thoughts on the actual game. Well, the first half was fairly encouraging certainly it was the most encouraging half probably of the six uh that Spurs have played against Chelsea in this praise indeed Charlie praise indeed in this epic trilogy yeah it is a bit damn with faint praise isn't it uh you know they were in the game they were competing they were scrapping obviously they had the Kane disallowed goal that I'm sure we'll come on to and then it all fell apart a bit I mean I thought the the, the Tanganga booking was very significant because Hudson-Odoi realised he could run at him and Tanganga couldn't really make a tackle. And that actually led to both goals because the first goal comes with him beating Tanganga around the halfway line and then passing to Ziyech. And then the second, he glides past him and then Dyer fouls him and then uh, Chelsea score from the resulting free kick. And, and that one-two, the one-two punch of conceding those goals so quickly... Uh, just killed it. And, and, and you know, with the team selection, which again, I'm sure we'll get on to, with, with all those defenders out, they were kind of set up to make life difficult and awkward for Chelsea. And they did that, but they weren't set up to come back from a 2-0 deficit. And I, there wasn't a moment from when Chelsea went 2-0 up that it looked like Spurs were really going to get back in the game. Before we get into the individual nooks and crannies then, uh, Jack, anything you want to add about just general overall impressions of, of the third of what... Uh, 
Um, Charlie's described it as an epic trilogy. It's not an epic trilogy I would pay to see in the cinema. I've got to be no, honest. I'm not sure I used the word epic. I think you did. I think you did. I take that back. I had Lord of the Rings on my mind. No, just 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 a trilogy. Yes, it, it, I'm afraid it turned out at, uh, like horrible bosses three or something. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, pitch, pitch perfect three. <laughs> wow. I actually would disagree with Charlie and say that the best half that Tottenham have played against Chelsea this year was the first half of the Premier League game, which they lost 3-0. When but that went, wasn't part of the trilogy. When, no. when Nuno is in uh, charge. That, no, 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 no that, but I wasn't including that. I was only talking about the trilogy. That was the pilot for the trilogy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Only, only the recent three. Yeah, that was, like I was more just about of a sort the three. of prequel. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, was the, that was a rare time in which Tottenham have really kind of been on the front foot against Chelsea. Uh, in a way That's which never Pete really happens Nuno. anymore. Yeah, it was literally Pete <laughs> Nuno. Um, whereas yesterday, yeah, I mean, I don't really think I had much to add. I just thought it was a no. pretty, mi- pretty miserable watching experience. Okay, well, let me ask you then. He has been praised after the Leicester game, um, the manager. I have to say, when I saw the 11 that he had picked, and I will take into account, you know, the, oh, X, Y, and Z were injured, then they shouldn't really be on the bench for a team that has aspirations to be taken seriously. Obviously, there were an extraordinary amount of fullbacks and people who have played fullback <laughs> um, in the team. And again, let's be honest, outfield players, actual attackers too. Mm. Is it that Spurs are now in such a place, Jack, that they because they their record against Chelsea is abysmal? It is, I mean, at home, how can it be nearly 40 games they've won one? Spurs have had lots of good players in that time and Chelsea aren't always in the best of form. Or is it the manager who, because it's his old team, has the three worst selections he's made, in my opinion, of his tenure at Spurs so far have been the games against Chelsea. Has he got a problem with Chelsea or is it a combination of both? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. I definitely think that he he has a particular... I don't know, fear is... I don't think fear is the right word, but he has a particular need to come up with a clever plan in these games to avoid a what I think a result that he doesn't want. So I was thinking when I was watching the game, I thought, hold on a second, this reminds me of something. Where have I seen this before? And it was the FA Cup, I don't know if you remember, the FA Cup quarterfinal five years ago, where Antonio Conte's Chelsea hosted Mourinho's Manchester United at Stamford Bridge. Wow. And Mourinho went there and played a back six. He had, a, he had a narrow back four of Phil Jones, Chris Smalling, Marcus Rojo, and Matteo Damian, with then auxiliary kind of fullbacks, um, Ashley Young and Antonio Valencia, forming a back six. What a shower. With, yeah, with, uh, <laughs> Marcus Rashford having to chase around up front. And they was, I mean, it was really bad. It was a really bad game. And uh, I think And Herrera got sent off in the first half, and Chelsea won 1-0 to set up an FA Cup semi-final with Pochettino's Tottenham. And watching it yesterday, I thought, hold on a second, it's the same game. He's play- He's gone there. You know, the away manager has gone there. So what, and the, the game I was just referring to, mm. I think one of Mourinho's, maybe Mourinho's first or second return to Stamford Bridge since he was sacked in Christmas 2015. Well, they'd been battered 4-0 earlier in the yeah. season, do you remember? So, so I think that he was probably Judas, scarred by that. It was the Chelsea fans calling him Judas. He was said, you know, in the press conference afterwards, Judas is still number one. And just watching that team yesterday, it was just like that Mourinho game. The fact that it nearly worked shows that it wasn't a disastrous plan. But at the same time, it's very different from what we've seen before from Conte. And the fact that a manager would go to a back six for a game like this 
does show it really underlines how unconfident he must be with his plan A. Jack, but what measure do you think it nearly worked? Well, because it, I think the Harry Kane disallowed goal was a marginal call, 50-50 either way. True. And if it, if it had been allowed, then the game would have been a very different place. That said, the idea of playing very defensive football and hoping that Harry Kane is good enough to make the most of his uh, like the scraps he has to feed off, that's what we saw for 17 months when Mourinho was manager of Tottenham. Absolutely horrible. I mean, I, I, yeah. I agree and with it, you. I'm not saying it can't work, but, you know. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. And this is something I reported in my piece this morning, that there were play some of the some of those in the dressing room did feel that going into the first game against Chelsea, that Conte did seem really preoccupied with how good Chelsea were and, you know, very much focusing on how we can stop them. I think in this case, I have some sympathy because they did have a lot of injuries. And I think most of the changes he made yesterday were because of knocks rather than him thinking, I desperately want to have six defenders. But I, but I do think it's really interesting the this theme of kind of being frazzled a bit by playing an old team and overthinking it. And, and Jack uses the Mourinho example. The, the Arteta-Guardiola one is a really fascinating one. And, and this spawned perhaps the, the weirdest and worst of these where he played Willian as a false nine away at City last season. And this isn't good Willian. This was like properly washed up. Oh my God, what has happened to him, Willian? So, so clearly with this, with Mourinho, you know, T, it, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because you can't unlearn things. You know, Conte will know so much about this Chelsea team and, and want to use that to his advantage. But there can be times when it feels a bit like it's overcomplicating. But I, I do think in this instance, I do have some sympathy just because of all the players that were out. No, no, in, in some ways, and this is not a super serious point, it's a bit like going to a school reunion, isn't it? Where you're going to see an old girlfriend and you what, you, you make sure you pull your tummy in a little bit um, so that uh, you, they can all see how, and you, and you wear your best jacket so they can all see how well you're doing. Uh, unfortunately, no, definitely, yeah. Un- unfortunately, of course, uh, football, it's not, it's not just about turning up for the reunion. There is a further test to come that happens on the rectangle of grass. Uh, so there's nowhere to hide. And my problem with it is, is this. And look, nobody likes to lose 7-0. But the, the way Spurs were set up, Emiliano Zapata's, I put it on Twitter, uh, old thing about it's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. I think this is never more obvious than in, in association football these days where, and this was my constant, constant refrain when Mourinho was in charge, if you park the, park the bus or whatever phrase you're going to use, if you deep block on the edge of your own box, there's so many things that can go wrong now ridiculous VAR decisions, handballs that get given against you in the first minute of important Mm. Champions League finals. You cannot play that deep anymore, or very rarely can you play. Even Atletico Madrid are trying to stop doing it, and they almost won the Champions League doing it. But the rules have changed. The atmosphere has changed. And I just think, for a man of Antonio Conte's experience and knowledge of the game, to play nine defenders... And to hope that that's going to be enough, it, it, it's, it's just not enough to do. And I would prefer, personally speaking, Spurs to lose that game 4-1 having a go than to stand on the edge of their own box waiting for the tide to come in as it inevitably did. I think as well, I have some sympathy because I lean more towards the camp or have lent more towards the camp of Chelsea are the European champions. Mm-hmm. They're a really great team. They have a bench that would get into the Spurs team, a lot of them. All uh, fair. So... so also Spurs are at a massive disadvantage. I think what has upset or frustrated some Spurs fans with the Chelsea trilogy is the is looking at what Brighton did in midweek. 
and Brighton, who are similarly, even more so, out-muscled, out-powered on paper, they not only drew with Chelsea, they outplayed them for long stretches. And they did it in such a way where they took the game to them. They didn't just sit back. So, I th- And actually, Chelsea's record in the league hasn't been great of late. A lot of teams have, you know, Ever- Benitez has Everton picked up a point there. So they're not totally unbeatable. The, the, I guess the caveat or the sort of counter-argument to that is that Chelsea do, for whatever reason, seem to raise their game against Spurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they seem to love playing them. They have this ridiculous head-to-head that we know about. And just seem to turn up every time. Every time you think, but by the law of averages, surely Spurs have got to win one of these at Stamford Bridge or at least make it competitive. It just doesn't seem to happen. I mean, they've scored now one goal in their last seven league meetings with Chelsea. And that was an own goal. The last time a Spurs player scored against Chelsea in the league was that Son Heung-min goal at Wembley when David Luiz fell over and kind of ushered him into the box. I mean, that's how long ago it was. So... It is strange. And and I don't think... Because Spurs, they took the game to Liverpool. I know Liverpool were COVID hit. Yeah. So so were Spurs. But, you know, and, and they beat City on the opening day in another Nuno masterclass. How he's missed. Ah, oh, um, the glory days of yeah. Nuno, yeah. <laughs> Go on, but not forget. He's living rent-free in our heads. We need to just get over Nuno. But, you know, so it's not necessarily just, you know, against bigger teams. But it's interesting because we are in a bit of a pattern of play a not-so-good team and get a good result, then play Chelsea and lose. And so you're constantly yo-yoing between how how good actually are they. And, and, and you know, everyone was, I think all the previews for this game were, you know, Conte hasn't had a big challenge so far. Things do look good, though, after Leicester. And Sunday, we'll find out where this team really are. You know, hoping that that would then set up a good result. And it all then just didn't. I just want to go back to what you said mm. about Brighton and how Brighton have managed to give Chelsea a game. And obviously, you know, and you're right, Chelsea have dropped a, a lot, of, a lot of Premier League points recently, so they are beatable. But the great thing about Brighton is that Brighton have an identity. You know, this is Potter's third season, whereas this is Conte's only been at, Ch- at Tottenham for three months, and I think Tottenham can't. It's very difficult for Tottenham to have that same kind of deeply ingrained playing identity that someone like Brighton mm. do have, and that means that that you know they have to kind of make it up on the hoof quite a lot more than even like lesser resource teams with longer term managers. Like Conte was talking about this even in advance of the, the North London derby that never happened, how it's kind of, you know, he's been there for three months and Arteta's been there for three years. It is just a lot or no, sorry, Arteta's been there for two and a bit years, mm-hmm. sorry. It is just a lot it is just a lot harder for Tottenham to play in the way that a team a, the way a co- the coordinated way that a team like Brighton can play, as good as Conte is. Yeah, I, I hear that, but uh, I, I, can I not counter it but add to it? Um, I think at the very top of professional sport, there's a question of courage, isn't there? And it's not about physical courage. Chelsea did out-muscle Spurs, I thought, yesterday, but it wasn't for a lack of, you know, actual bravery. But it's moral courage, isn't it? Having the courage to do something that is uncomfortable. It is much easier to sit on on the edge of your box with nine people defending than it is, as Brighton did, to come out and play one and two touch football, which you've trained for for years uh, in those rondos that they are obsessed with in, in on modern training grounds. That actually takes a bit of guts, to use a, a more old-fashioned word for it. And at the moment, I hope it's not emanating from the manager. I hope it, you know, I don't. The, the players they don't they don't seem to me to have the courage to to, to face up to the, what a challenge Chelsea is. And I tell you why this is important because just as you said, the current run of fixtures has been do well against average teams, lose to Chelsea. In February, they've got a load of good teams coming down the pipeline, Spurs. Um, and and we don't want to see the Chelsea experience repeated over and over again because what looks at the moment like a 
uh, you know, reasonable prospect of a challenge for fourth place could sit very soon turn into, can we get out of the Europa Conference League next season, you know? I'm not that negative about like the medium-term prospects for Spurs, even no. despite this. Like I do generally agree with Charlie that it's you can put the Chelsea games to one side. Like Chelsea are just a very a much better team than Tottenham. One thing I am interested in, I want to know Charlie's opinion on this and Danny's. Do you think that the the four four two? Do you think that's there to? Do you think that might be called again from the start of games, or is that a kind of one off thing? I felt they don't more... really have the players for it, do they? Yeah, I felt it was more one off to the point where I was when I saw the team, I, I was thinking it might even be a 3-4-3 just because of how wedded Conte is to that. It would have it would have required a bit of moving pieces about. But yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see loads of it. I mean, Sky apparently was saying that it was the first time he's played a back, started with a back four in a Premier League game since that famous Arsenal 3-0 defeat in September 2016 that prompted the switch to the back three that then carry Chelsea all the way to the league. So, yeah, I, I don't think it will be... Uh, you know, I think it was a kind of break glass and emergency kind of but situation. He, but he, he, and in my opinion, it is simply that, again, taking, allowing for Antonio Conte's fantastic CV, let me write a list for you of the teams against whom 4-4-2 won't work. One, Chelsea. There they are, the very top. Because if you don't match Chelsea's midfield passing, it'll close it down. You've got to clog up the middle of Chelsea's team I mean, look, ZX's goal is ridiculous. You've got two left-backs on the pitch and they still managed to get cut inside and do an iron robin. But essentially, I, I thought it was far too open a, a, a system. Maybe Stephen Bergvine, who actually was, uh, on the day I thought Spurs' was, you know, most promising-looking player. Yeah, it was player. very encouraging. If he had played in a 4-4-1-1, then maybe you could have had that extra body in midfield. But I don't think Steven's ever going to be a hustling midfielder. And you could see that he was aware of the problem because Hoiberg essentially did a man-marking job on Mason Mount's runs. And so you were left with Winks, solitary and alone, in the centre of midfield. That's not going to work against the champions of Europe. But mm. as you say, I'm going uh, because we don't want to go down the road of everything is bleak and black, we can say that maybe maybe allowing for the injuries that he felt that was the only system he could he could produce. But I don't see him playing four at the back because it just never allows him to get that high width that most of his successful teams have tended to have. But the, yeah, I, I think and I, I've been saying this a lot. But the the encouraging thing is is that games against Chelsea won't define Tottenham season. They no. they can lose this. Most of their rivals will lose this. I know United gained a sort of bonus point in this fixture, but. I would fully expect Arsenal and West Ham to lose this fixture. Spurs can go away to Anfield and to the Etihad as they have to do mm-hmm. for the rest of the season, get beaten 5 or 6 nil. I'm not saying they will. I'm not saying that would be advisable or encouraging, but it's possible that they'll get, lose those games fairly comfortably. And it's also possible it won't really matter because those teams are... Those three are kind of in a league of their own. I know that with the games in hand, Spurs can still actually go ahead of Chelsea, but on the evidence we've seen, they're a long, long way off that three. The key thing will be games against teams of a much lower standard. And even Leicester, who, you know, they they finished, what, fifth last season? I know they're not doing so well this season, but I thought they were really quite bad. And, and, you know, again, they're missing a ton of players, but the drop-off... When when Chelsea, uh, sorry, when Spurs play United, when they play Arsenal, when they play West Ham, the drop off is just so massive that even if you if you do lose comfortably to Chelsea, you know I don't think we should be. I don't think it mat- it makes too much of a difference to their top four prospects. And the great thing about Sunday, how different that feels because they won that Leicester game. Had they lost that game, then yeah, we'd be saying 
woe is us, are they going to get top four, they're not progressing under Conte. The fact they beat Leicester, this was always a free hit. We said that before, and so I think it's good to treat it as such. And while it's dis- whilst it's disappointing, but they were missing a lot of players, and the, the squad can't absorb missing a lot of players. It's not Chelsea where they can get away with that. No, no, if you, if you, if, um, and we'll talk about uh, incoming bodies uh, a little bit later, but you know, if Romero uh, comes back fit and, it, and is as as improved as he was in his last two proper appearances. Son will come back if they get Adama Traore. Son and Traore will be will be fearsome pace up front for Harry Kane to play with. Um, you know, it's it's not all doom and gloom. Jack, can I ask you a question? I, mean, I know this is a Spurs podcast, and you perhaps be expected to, to, to answer this question on, on, in another forum. Do you think it actually looks terrible? It's a bad look for the Premier League that... That a team that has genuine aspirations to be the fourth best team in the league should be so far off of one of the top three. I mean, I'm, 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 this, this is being cast into a very bad light by me by last night and the night before's American football, where because of their devotion to parity, we saw all four of what affected the quarterfinals go to the last kick or throw of the game. The teams are incredibly closely matched. And yet the Premier League, for all of its grandeur, the fourth best team, possibly, in the league is miles off the other teams. Is that's not a good look, in my opinion? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I definitely think that financial stratification is has been really bad for the Premier League. Yeah, like it's not healthy for Manchester City to get a hundred points. City have got like a hundred point season, a ninety seven point season. Liverpool, I think, have got ninety seven or ninety eight before City. If they wanted to, could get well into the deep into the 90s this year but I don't think they'll need to no. and that's not good you know it's that that is not a healthy system for the the fact that teams from the bottom half can't really beat the teams of the top half that's what people that's what the Premier League always used to tell us was ah oh, the, the great thing about the Premier League you know is that the small teams can beat the big teams any given that's Sunday and all anymore. that yeah, yeah it's, it's completely not true and, born, and you know you might well you could say well you know the Ingolstadt don't beat Bayern Munich very often or Valenciennes don't beat Paris Saint-Germain very often but that's only, and that's that's only making my point again actually and, that, you know, yeah. and that's true so it's not unique to the Premier League but no. it's unhealthy when it happens in those countries too I mean, I might be wrong, but I don't think the Premier League is less popular because of this. Like, it should, no. arguably, it should be. But the fact is that people, you know, more people around the world are tuning in towards the Premier League than ever before, even though so many of the games are just a foregone conclusion. Like, you just know if it's City or Liverpool, they're going to win. And that's just been borne out by the evidence the last five years. Uh, where Tottenham fit in this, well, it's not impossible that they can have a big, you know, they've, they've shown that. I mean, we talk about this all the time. They've shown this, but that season they've got 86 points. I think next season, if Conte's still there, which I imagine I think he will be, they'll get a really good points total because they'll have a whole season of Conte and new players in. So you can do it, but yeah, you, you're right. It is miserable when nominally the fourth, maybe fifth, fourth or fifth best team in the country can't get close to the third best team. I think just just to play devil's advocate on that a little bit, I mean, clearly it's nowhere near competitive enough. But just in relation to other leagues in Europe, I can see why it's so popular. If you think that between 2009 and 2019, no one retained the Premier League even. So that's pretty amazing. That's winning it twice in a row. No one did that until from Chelsea, uh, United made it three in a row in 2009 and then City made it two in a row in 2019. No one retained it. 
that's pretty incredible, really, at a time where in every other league, it was, I mean, what run have Juve been on? What have Bayern been on? Barca and Real were sort of swapping it with each other, but they there were a couple of twos and there a couple of threes. So I think that that is part of the reason why. Over the last few years, obviously, City are looking like they might be doing a Bayern Munich, a Juve or whatever, but we just haven't had that in the same way. And, and I do think that makes a massive difference because we have genuinely been able to say at the start of pretty much every season until maybe this one, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. And even this one, we thought Liverpool and Chelsea would run them close. I do also think the big six thing, as much as we take the Pearson, as much as now maybe it isn't a big six, has meant there have been six pretty strong teams all competing with one another. And even that is better than in some leagues where you don't have that many good teams who are realistically going to beat one another. And also, you do... We shouldn't... I mean... I'm slightly arguing it's myself because I do think it's a shame that so much competition is gone. But you do still get results even this season where Palace go and beat Man City at the Etihad. You know, it's not that there are enough to sort of keep you just about coming back, even though the overall picture is bleak and one that doesn't speak of competition. And I also think it will change quickly and Spurs could get closer to that. And a last thought on this. And um, I look at you two on the screen in front of me and I think, God, they're very young. But actually, it's a generational thing even below you. Um, I was talking to Kevin Hatchard uh, the other day, an expert on the, on the Bundesliga, and he was telling me, because I was having the exact same argument about Bayern Munich's domination of that league, and he was saying that the research has shown that the Bundesliga have done, because they've got a very good um, recent TV contract for the rest of the world. I know that the overseas contract is very, very good for the Bundesliga. And he says that the research uh, shows that, particularly among the very young, you know, teenagers and people in their early 20s, and particularly in outside of Europe, the research shows that they actually like the fact that Bayern Munich win mm. all the time. It means they know who the winner is. You can you can back a winner if you want to, or you can choose a team to try and bounce off of Bayern Munich. But it's almost as though the younger folk, if this piece of research is to be entirely believed, they don't like the uncertainty of not knowing who is pop idol and who is the one that's being thrown out of, that, of the house, uh, so to speak. I find that you know, ridiculous myself, but you know, the new the new ways of selling TV um, and watching it on your on your phone while talking to your mates they're they're not for me, are they? They're, they're aimed at somebody else. I can definitely empathise with that though, because as much as I'm ashamed to admit it, I remember when I was in my early mid teens or whatever, and Real, the Galacticos of Real Madrid were a thing. And all I wanted was to see Ronaldo and Raul and Roberto Carlos and these guys smashing Vaticano on a Sunday night. I I didn't want to. Comp- I, I was you know and and I it, it, I'm ashamed that in you know 2002 and 2004 when Valencia won the league, I probably would have been like, oh that's a shame. I wanted to see Beckham and and those guys just tearing it up because you're not invested in the in the competition as such. You just want. Kick back, entertain me. I don't want competition. I just want to see you know Barca and Real strut around and be Harlem Globetrotters. So I can see why people who aren't, who don't care about the purity of the competition, if it's not their main league, especially, are just happy to be entertained. Poor old David. He's got Goliath has got fans here. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know the answer to this, but how much competition do we actually want? I mean, you started this segment off by talking about NFL. You know, I'm not a big NFL mm-hmm, fan, sure. but it strikes me that one of the great things about it is that at the start of the season, any number, you know, a big, a much bigger proportion of the NFL teams can pl- plausibly win it. The Bengals are through to the semi-final. Two years ago, they were the worst team statistically in America. In a sense, it feels like a bit of a holy grail. Like, how how could we replicate that in English football? And I, I think it's impossible. Like, I think we are so far down the path of stratification 
that it's you know you can't put the toothpaste back in the no tube. no you can't like you can't in that way we, absolutely it's, been, it's basically the, the the system has been broken to the point at which it's unfixable I, I i think it's such an interesting thing with with sport and i've i've written about this before in relation to tennis and i but but sort of more broadly in sport i think the big four era is pretty much the sweet spot of You've got a few giants who are you can root behind and you know they're going to be getting to the semis, finals of tournaments, but you don't know who of those is going to win. And that is really exciting because the problem you can have in sport, and golf has had this, women's tennis has had this, is that you've got so many different winners that for the casual fans, you're just like, who's good now? Who I can't really root. No one seems that good because no one can win more than like a tournament or two in a row. So you kind of want enough competition but not too much and there's, there's quite a small sweet spot I think for that to exist and I, and I feel like in the Premier League obviously not to people necessarily in England who are more invested in their team doing well I think we you know there was that a bit the big four era was quite competitive between certainly three of those teams were winning leagues and then in the last few years there was Chelsea Liverpool City the problem now is it looks like we're in a bit of a big one era and that's just no fun for anyone. I mean, I must say, the last word on this, if I may, when I try to explain what happens in America to soccer fans, um, and I get it while they're so bewildered, the simple fact that if you go into a shop and buy, let's say, um, a, a Dallas Cowboys shirt, uh, you know, a, a replica kit, that the money for that doesn't go to the Dallas Cowboys. It's divided up among all 30-odd mm. teams in America. This causes football fans' eyes to pop out of their heads, doesn't it? But, you know, in one way, um, the NFL is the most capitalistic sports organization in the world. But in the background, a bit like the farming, it's the most socialist of all organizations. I was organizations. just going to say, I find it so weird that America, the most capitalist nation in the world, it has this like communist structure when it comes to some of its sports. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Another thing I want to ask about what, what works and what doesn't work is VAR in this case. Harry Kane's disallowed goal. Now, I have to say, in a week in a weekend where that penalty was given um, against Crystal Palace and for Liverpool, the Kane thing, of course, makes perfect sense. Do you think it was a foul? I, I think, personally, it's one which doesn't get overruled either way because it's a... To me, it's a could go, it's a subjective call, and uh, but I kind of think that's fine. I think that's the fallacy of VAR that there's this objective truth that we can find, and and ironically, the only area where there is an objective truth, if you believe the lines, is offside, and and in theory that should satisfy people because that's not about interpretation, that's just black and white. I think that Kane one, if if the ref doesn't give it, VAR shouldn't, and I don't think would overrule no. it. But by the same token, I don't. I don't think it's a clear and obvious error because I think there's enough there. But but that's the thing. You're not going to get. We talk about you know we all we want is consistency, but that doesn't really exist in a meaningful way because referees are humans. And then what people I think people thought that VAR was this kind of omniscient truth bot. It's just a bloke in Stockley Park who also has an opinion and has prejudices, and he may not have thought it was a foul either. One last one then about the about the game against Chelsea. 
Winks, having been completely on the outside, I know there's been injuries and all the rest of it, Jack Winks has now started four games on the trot. Expediency, or has uh, Antonio seen something in him that he likes? Yeah, I think that it's not just expediency. I think we are in the midst of a Winks naissance, uh, quite surprisingly. <laughs> he's been... The thing is about Winks is that he, he's got the capacity to pass the ball forwards, which, frankly, none of his other... You know, the only other guy who can do that is Ndombele, who's obviously getting pushed out of the club. We saw, you know, we saw that with Winks's assist for Kane at Leicester. We saw that with, you know, the assist that should have been at Southampton. We saw it with his forward passing in the Liverpool draw before Christmas. You know, Winks gives you something on the ball that Hoiberg and Skip don't really. And he's also proved to Conte that he's, I mean, reliable is a word that Conte's used about him. He's worked very hard in training. I think I think he is improving defensively. So I think it all makes sense to have Winks back in the team. That said, Winks has struggled up against Jorginho and Kovacic. There's no getting past that. Jorginho and Kovacic are just on a different level. You know, that's what you get when... You know, you buy one guy from Napoli for 50 million and the other guy from Real Madrid for 50 million. Like, these guys are top, top, top level central midfielders. So, Wings has found it tough, but he's not hes not the only one to have found it tough in those games. And I do think he offers Tottenham a bit of a different dimension on the ball when he does play. Charlie, are you pro Wings? Yeah, I am. I mean, I, I've always... I've always liked Harry Winks, and I found the hostility towards him quite odd, given he's a homegrown player clearly gives us all every week I don't really see get given we're normally told that all fans demand his effort and he's clearly trying he's one of our own I, I've never really understood stood why he gets such a hard time and I, I, I can help you with that um, yeah go on it's ingrained in Spurs fans and I'm one of now of, of uh, you know multiple decades Spurs used to be a very big spending club and the answer to everything was to buy in somebody new and that's stuck in the Spurs DNA. In fact, Winks is getting more stick because he's one of our own. Um, if we had, yeah. if he'd been brought in for um, tens of um, of millions of pounds, he'd be still getting the kind of easy ride that I think Giovanni Lo Celso gets, for instance. Good player though he is for Argentina. Yeah, maybe there's that mistrust, isn't there? Because they've never had the endorsement of someone spending tens uh, of millions. Exactly, on them. and I think I think um, I think the Spurs fans is in the back of their minds are still, you know, we could go and get someone better than this instead of training people. Uh, to be better and to improve them, uh, you know, inside the club. I, I would say just on that, as well, Jack raising the point about Kovacic and Jorginho, the, the Stamford Bridge press box is really low and you do get a really good view of sort of what they're doing up close. And I have to say, seeing Kovacic, Jorginho over the last couple of weeks, they are very, very impressive. Kovacic especially, I mean, how Spurs could do with a player like him who can get the ball, beat the press, move the team up the pitch. I mean, it's kind of like what we dream about in Dombele, but... <laughs> hasn't really happened. And, and you look at now in Dombele, Deli, Lo Celso, Conte's kind of cleansing of all attacking <laughs> creative midfielders in his squad. Yeah, the, the, there isn't There's much There's kind of left. nothing that Kovacic can't do, is there? Yeah, like he's complete... so good. And they had Kante on the bench. Kante yeah. was on the bench. Like and if you remember one... that Kante, game, Jack... Pulisic, ha... Kante, Pulisic, Havertz, Havertz Werner, Werner on the bench yesterday. Yeah. It's a joke. I mean, of course, and of course they, weren't, they weren't going to buy Kovacic until the transfer ban came in. They were kind of forced into... Uh, paying the forty million for him. Let's let's end this by saying two things just about the gap between Spurs and Chelsea. And this is not griping. And no, you can't drink my tears out of a vial because that's a stupid <laughs> and childish thing to do. Cry more, Dan. Cry more. See, uh, yeah. Since since um, Abramovich went to Chelsea, Chelsea has spent approximately and almost exactly, in fact, two and a half times as much on players and wages as Spurs have. And if you want to look at the two starting elevens. 
albeit you know one was affected, both affected by injuries. Of course, this is what happens. Uh, Chelsea's goalkeeper and centre forward cost more than Spurs' whole team put together. That's just to put into relief what we've been talking about. I still think um, Antonio Conte and the Spurs players could put up a little bit of a better show of trying to bridge that gap. When we come back in a few seconds' time, we'll talk about how Spurs might be looking to bridge that gap as we tick down into the last uh, seven days of the transfer window. You listen to the view from the lane. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Adam Hurry, host of Football Clichés, a truly unique podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Twice a week, my guests and I tear apart the language of football, the words, the phrases, the mannerisms and the weird habits of everyone involved in the game. From the shoes that football pundits are legally required to wear, to the didn't play for Sam Allardyce's Bolton but really should have done 11, Football Clichés explores all the tiny things that you didn't realise you cared about, but believe me, you do. Yeah, welcome back. You're still listening to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitbrook are with us as well. Jack, I don't want necessarily to get into a squabble about Antonio Conte's apparent performative appeals to the board to bring in more players by picking teams that I think are slightly ridiculous. Let's just say that Chelsea are a better team than Spurs for the sake of this argument. But will the defeat, and the three defeats against Chelsea... Uh, have hurried up Paritici and Levy in the transfer window, which is now getting close to being be over. I think so, yeah. I think everyone knows at Tottenham that Conte has been playing a bit of a game, I think, over the course of the last few weeks. Not just in the team, because I don't think no. I don't think Conte would consciously choose a worse team. Like he's so competitive. Mm. I don't buy this idea that he's gonna put out a team he knows Sabotage, isn't good. No. Yeah, I find way. that idea crazy. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It, but what he does do is go to a press conference, get asked, "Are you? can you promise you'll be here next season? And then duck the question repeatedly. Picking the team, I don't think, is a game, but the, a lot of the press conference stuff is a game. And I do think Conte has been exerting a bit of unsubtle pressure to get a bit of money. Where that's going to end up, I just don't know. I mean, it's kind of amazing that on the 24th of January, we've got no idea really what's going to happen in the next week or so. Like, there's so many plates are spinning, both potential ins and potential outs, that... That like the scope of what might happen in the next week is huge. I mean, I think because we know this. I remember when Paratici was appointed and talking to people who'd worked with him and covered him, whatever. You know, this is his calling card: the plate spinning, the you know making quite. There are so many players inquiries would have been made of. I think I feel like broadly there'll be you know there'll be outgoings, there'll be incomings. Who that is? There, uh, there's an enormous. 
diversity on who that could be because there are just so many players that he'll be having conversations with and about. But there are a lot of irons in the fire. Uh, They are slightly constrained with this need to get rid of players or certainly this desire to get rid of players because you're not... It is then out of your control. It's not like Conte when he was at Chelsea saying, give me some money and go out and buy some players. This is, yeah, I need players. But that is also dependent on Newcastle or whoever else wanting your players. And no amount of Paratici hammering his phone can solve that if they if there just are if there just isn't the sufficient interest. The interesting thing about this is that it really challenges Daniel Levy's capacity to sell players at not and not feel like he's got an amazing deal. I think this has been mm. one of Levy's big problems over the last ten years. A weakness is even. That, is, yeah, exactly. Is that he's been very, very good at selling at getting great deals for in demand good players. You know, Walker yeah. to City, Burb to Man United uh, Modric to Real Madrid and Bale to Real Madrid, you know, fantastic fees in all those cases, especially Walker, Bale and Berbatov. But what Daniel Levy's not very good at is when there's a player who he kind of everyone knows should be moved on, but the money isn't quite what he wanted. And then he, he just decides at the end, oh, I'm not going to sell him. You know, whether that's, you know, Danny Rose to Chelsea, Lucas Moura to Napoli, Eric Dyer to Man United, Toby to Man United. Christian like, Eriksen the season Ericsson, before he went. So many of these players like Tottenham haven't sold at the right moment. And it's and it's been you know Levy struggled with this. He struggled to to sell at the right times. And whereas now he's under a lot of pressure, you know, he's, the fact is that one, given the quality of players Tottenham are trying to get rid of, which is not high, and two, given the kind of COVID post COVID era in football economics, you're not going to get. It's not like City offering fifty million for Kyle Walker anymore. You're not going to get a deal like that. What they and they are if they do want to get rid of whether it's Delhi and Dombele, Doherty, Lacelsa, whoever, they are going to have to compromise. They are going to have to take a not great deal. They're going to have to sell players for less money than they bought them. They can't do Walker to City type deals anymore. I'm a recent convert. I have to say to your point of view here that if only for the for the for the refreshing the blood of the team, occasionally moving even good players on isn't the worst idea. Well, that was Fergie's genius. Was was knowing when to do that. Um, he was picking and choosing from the best players in the world, though most of the time. With true, that. it's slightly true, but then, but 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 I mean, Levy and Spurs had some pretty elite Premier League talent to be doing that mm-hmm. with a few years ago. That yeah, I, granted, now they don't, but that's also partly a legacy of not doing it then. I mean, Deli Ali, if we were having this conversation yeah. four years ago, you'd be saying. Well, how you know how much could Spurs get for him? Hundred, hundred million. I mean, yeah. Coutinho had gone for that sort of money at, at this point four years ago. So, yeah, you know, and and that is that is the risk, and that's the skill of of, of recruitment. So much of it is about selling. Do you want to make a wild guess? I mean, I, I'm not going to. I don't know about these outgoings because they are very difficult to do, as Jack just said. Anyone want to make a wild guess of how many will come in? Is Traore going to be the only one? No, I'm starting to think there'll be more. I do think they'll get Traore done. But I think the more play, I mean, look, put it in simple terms, the more the more players they get rid of, the more players they'll be able to bring in. And while I can't go in, you know, I can't predict exactly exactly which names will come in at this point because it's just kind of unknowable. I do think they'll push hard for another forward, another midfielder at the very least, possibly another another centre back who can play on the left. How exciting! If that, that was all to come about, that would be really exciting, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think given Traore is one we definitely expect will happen. Yeah, something like three in total Feel, feels doable. Well, as I said at the start of the transfer window, Paratici 
has a has a you know he's he's paid a lot of money and has a reputation for doing these things. He's, he's had six months to, to work out what he what he wanted to do. Admittedly, the manager changed in the middle of six months, so that is a slight hiccup in the road, if you like. But good players are good players after all, aren't they? And so we'll see what, what happens with that. And finally then, I guess um, we have another, in this case, enforced by the South American World Cup qualifiers. It's brought maybe a midwinter break by default to the Premier League. Do we know what the club's plans are for the next couple of weeks? Are they going to hot weather training? Are they uh, having a couple of weeks off? Are they going to spend some time at Chick King on the high road? They're staying put. So, I mean, players have got a bit of time off this week and then they'll have at least a full week next week at Hotspur Way in preparation for that Brighton game. So hopefully beneficial because I think there's a sense that the players do need to recharge a bit. It's been a pretty gruelling period since Conte came in. Sure. So they'll get some time off, a bit of time with their families. I mean, some may decide to go away. And then, yeah, they'll have that f- some proper time on so, the training someone pitch. Someone will be going away and not coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, have yourself a nice little holiday in Paris oh, potentially. Look at look at look at the attraction of Newcastle in general. Look, yeah, look exactly. at look at the big market there. You'll love, you'll absolutely <laughs> love it. Well, that could happen with Lacelso in the sense that he's off now to South America. Yeah, he's got, could be he's it. Playing uh, Argentina got Chile away on Thursday night, and then they got Colombia at home next week. If you know, I mean, we can all. Charlie, I don't know what your interpretation of the situation, but the fact that he wasn't the 18 yesterday and then went on Instagram to make a big point about how he wasn't injured. <laughs> I love that, yeah. That's, hey, guys, remember like, me? That That's not great. Yeah, I mean, he we, um, David Ornstein has an item in his column then up today that Spurs have been exploring swap deals. It's funny to cast your mind back two years ago because that was like Lacelso's only really good period was the first few months of 2020 where he came in and, and it's one of those, I'm sure, if you trawled back and looked at things I wrote about him then would be you know embarrassing for me because I was saying how good I thought he was in that period and it looked like he'd found his feet and Spurs had made this really exciting signing and obviously since then he's just done so little really since March 2020 that first that first lockdown and now we're at a point where a player who they spent a lot of money on I don't think many Spurs fans are going to be lamenting his departure I think my my take on Lucelso is that while he's, I I quite like him and I want him, to, you know, I always want him to succeed at Tottenham. But there's very few players who they can sell for money who they would wouldn't be too sad to see go. And but Lucelso is one of them. And if they're gonna if they've decided to keep Bergwijn, which I think they kind of feels like they might have done, then Lucelso, like selling Lucelso is really one of your only ways to generate mm. money. Because they're not going to. I don't think they're going to get any money from Dombele, and I don't think they get any money for Delhi. And I, I think Dombele probably will go to PSG on loan, and I genuinely can't predict what's going to happen with, with Delhi. But if they want to make money, they're not going to sell Bergwijn. And I guess Lo Celso would probably be the way to do it. I much preferred it when you were just telling about all the brilliant incomings <laughs> that were getting coming to Spurs. Uh, listen, thank you both very, very much. I, th- I, th- I want to thank you particularly for keeping the conversation about that uh, trilogy of Chelsea defeats recently at a reasonable pitch because there is a danger always that Spurs fans, including myself, are going to go off the deep end because they are well, should say, um, actually, local rivals. Just on that, James made a good point and others made this point to me as well that really, yesterday, that the much more significant result was Arsenal drawing at home to Burnley and in that race for the top four, and, and James said... And others said the same, that really, if you'd offered them... The Chelsea defeat, especially with that team, looked lightly. But if you'd offered them that, but within that, um, Arsenal dropped two points at home to 
the bottom club Burnley. That's 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 a that's a pretty big result. Yeah, and of course Manchester United's uh, late 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 And United late obviously is annoying. Absolutely yeah. drove me mad. But then I thought, hang on, Danny. And we're less than 72 hours when you're jumping around the living room because Leicester had allowed Spurs a late win. Uh, so swings yeah, exactly. and roundabouts, absolutely. We'll get James back next Thursday when he's probably calmed down from the defeat at Chelsea. But meanwhile, thank you both very much for your contributions. And remember, if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can read all of our articles, including those by Jack and Charlie and everything else about Spurs and everything else that's going on on the site. There's a huge plethora of stuff by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And uh, right now you can get a 33% off a full subscription. We'll be back on Thursday when we'll be answering your questions in a mailbag special. So make sure to get in touch via the comments section of the Athletic app or via Twitter. Thank you all for listening. The Athletic.